You're listening to the Garbage Pod. Not too bad, thanks, Mark. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I think. I think. I think. What I need to do is get rid of this sound. Sound. Sound effect. Thank you. Yeah. Fine. So, what's been going on with you? Um, an awful lot. It's um, it's been a manic day. Been good fun, but manic. Um, went to my gym class this morning. Um, with about twenty minutes notice from a friend that I go with. So that was a manic car past eight, running around like a lunatic. Uh, about twenty minutes from uh, where we we uh, bed stuff to out the door uh, did a gym class which was really tough on um, come back and I've been working on some bits and bobs for one of my customers need to do two websites and some uh, software writing as well it's been been manic blimey yeah it does sound like you've been doing a fair bit of trekking today by the sounds of that I've clocked up a few miles mostly on a treadmill but <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. What's on the garbage pod today? Well, Laura, I'll tell you what's on the garbage pod today. Um, along with some stereotypical Halloween content, um, I thought we'd go with the flow and see where that takes us. Firstly, there is a bit of entertainment news that surged across the world today, uh, well, yesterday actually, within seconds. Of its announcements. Today, I am proud to announce the Walt Disney Company is acquiring Lucasfilm, the global entertainment company founded by George Lucas and the home of the legendary Star Wars franchise. In addition to getting the rights to one of the greatest family franchises and epic stories of all time, Disney is also acquiring all of Lucasfilm's operating businesses, including Industrial Light and Magic and Skywalker Sound. George Lucas is a true visionary and an innovative epic storyteller who has defined modern filmmaking with unforgettable characters and amazing stories. The Star Wars universe now has more than 17,000 characters inhabiting several thousand planets and spanning 20,000 years. And this gives Disney infinite inspiration and opportunities to continue the epic Star Wars saga. Fans can expect a new feature film, Star Wars Episode Seven, in theaters worldwide in 2015. And there will be more feature films, as well as consumer products, television projects, games, and theme park attractions. We're thrilled that George has entrusted the future of his extraordinary legacy to the Walt Disney Company and recognize what an honor it is. We truly understand the responsibility that comes with being the caretakers of such iconic characters that are beloved by hundreds of millions all over the world. Disney has a unique ability to grow strong brands and expand fantastic creative content, as we've proven with our successful acquisitions of both Pixar and Marvel. And the addition of Lucasfilm will further our growth strategy and create even more opportunity for Disney to drive significant long-term value for our shareholders. Well, that was Disney's um, CEO, uh, Bob Iger, uh, breaking the news to the world. This is what uh, George Lucas had to say about the deal. I've been a big fan of Disney all my life, uh, you know, from when I was born, uh, first day at Disneyland, uh, loved Disney movies, uh, got very involved with Disney um, in the uh, 80s, and uh, working in the parks 
uh, and I've always had a fondness for Disney. Um, at the same time, uh, as I've gone through my career, I realized at some point I needed to retire, and I wanted to go on and do other things, uh, things in philanthropy and doing more experimental kind of films, but I couldn't really drag my company into that, and uh, I felt it was time for me to uh, start thinking about retiring, and I've been doing that for the last uh, four years. Uh, and one of the most important uh, shifts that I had was I found Kathy Kennedy, who I'd been working with for 40 years, uh, and asked her if she wanted to come and be a co-chairman with me and get ready to take over the company and take over the franchise and do everything. And once that piece was in place, I knew then I could step away and actually retire. Uh, the final block in that would, was to um, find a good, solid home for the company. And um, the first place I thought was uh, Disney. Um, they're large enough, and the match of what our two companies are is just perfect because we're like a mini Disney. We have the same kind of operations. We do the same kind of thing. And I've worked with Disney over the years, and I know how they operate. So it was a perfect match of two companies that are uh, constructed similarly, do the same kind of product. And um, I think uh, we'll, you know, it'll give me a chance to go off and explore my own interests at the same time, feel completely confident that Disney, uh, you know, will take good care of the franchise I've built. And um, at the same time, you know, for me, I look at it as uh, uh, I'm investing in Disney because that's my retirement fund. The future Star Wars films, uh, Kathy and I have been working on future Star Wars films, and uh, the main reason I brought Kathy on is rather than quit, I wanted to have it move forward, but I needed somebody I trusted who could take that franchise and make it work the way I intended it to. So once Kathy came on board, we started working with writers and started working uh, on all the processes of doing the films. Um, so we've you know, got a plan for uh, seven, eight, and nine, which are the, is the, the end of the trilogy, and um, other films also. So uh, we have a, you know, a large uh, uh, group of ideas and characters and books and all kinds of things. We could go on making Star Wars for the next hundred years. He, he mentioned Kathy. That was uh, Kathy Kennedy, Kathleen Kennedy. She uh, is quite famous for being executive producers on things like um, Back to the Future and stuff like that. So her knowledge of the movie industry is um, pretty Extensive. big. Yeah, pretty big. Um, George Lucas is said to make over $4 billion from this deal. Half of it is going to be paid in cash. The rest of it is going to be made up of 40 million shares in the Disney Corporation. Uh, under the deal, Disney acquires Lucas's empire, Lock, Stock and Barrel, uh, as they now own LucasArts, ILM and Skywalker Sound. These days, there's pretty much nobody in the film industry who doesn't use the services of ILM or Skywalker Sound for special effects or sound effects. So imagine the profits that Disney will make from that alone. Yeah, that's going to be absolutely mind-boggling. I mean... On top of this, they, they, as, you, as we've mentioned, they have uh, the Marvel Comics, the Jim Henson Company. This will make Disney the world's biggest family entertainment production company. It does sound like they're trying to do their own sort of stint on Microsoft, you know, buying up all these other companies and making a super company. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, there's a lot of people that are dead against Disney buying um, Lucasfilm. Um, they said they're going to ruin Star Wars. If if you've ever seen any of the things that um, Disney have already done Star Wars related, you've got the Star Tours at the Disney parks. Uh, every um, summer, uh, they do a thing in, in Florida called Star Wars Weekends. It's for the whole month of May. Um, and... You know, all the big stars from the, the, the films are there. They do, they put on shows and everything for the kids. Uh, they do this thing called a Jedi Academy where they teach kids to uh, use lightsabers and stuff. It's, it's really good fun. <laughs> Excellent. But, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, a lot of people say they will ruin it. I mean, look what they've done with the Marvel movies. I mean, they got 
Joss Whedon involved. They've done this, these Avenger movies. They, they're, they're awesome. Um, you know, the Iron Man films, really successful. Um, I think they could really do something special. Um, my worry is, will they veer from the folklore that is already set up for Star Wars for films um, 7, 8 and 9? Um, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I mean, some people said, why don't they just go to one of the sets of novels that are out there and do a, a, a movie adaptation of those? But... Uh, a lot of people are saying that that's not going to happen, that's not the way they do things. It will certainly be interesting to see what they do do. On a theme, say Star Wars, how many films can you do before you start losing the plot? It's like the Rocky films. Well, you see, there is so many backstories. Um, as, as he said at the beginning there, um, Bob Iger said that there's over 17,000 characters in the Star Wars universe spanning over 20,000 years I mean they go back to the old republic when Jedi and Sith were a religion a proper religion um, it's quite an interesting backstory to be honest um, there are a set of books by a, a writer called Timothy I, I never remember how to pronounce his surname it's either Zahn or Zane and um, his books are set something like five or eight years after Return of the Jedi mm -hmm. and there's a new guy in charge of the, the new empire trying to rebuild the empire as it was uh, a guy called um, Grand Admiral Thrawn who is your thinking man's baddie he's, he's, he's pretty much like one of these James Bond baddies who's got the cat stroking the cat type um, guy you know mm -hmm. he obviously he doesn't believe in the force and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm it's uh, it's very complicated storyline, but it's excellent reading. Oh, it could be a good candidate for a film, then. Yeah, if they go that way. I can't see them doing it, but uh, we shall see. Will. Crichton, what are you doing, man? Oh, sir, I'm listening to the Garbage Pod. It's a podcast I found in the podosphere. I've got a couple of um, other news stories. Mm -hmm. The first one is that there is scientific proof that popcorn is healthier than fruit and vegetables. Okay. So the next time you're stuffing your face with popcorn, don't feel guilty. A new scientific study shows that f far from being junk food, popcorn packs a better nutritional punch than fruit or vegetables. Well, kind of. The study conducted at the University of Scranton in uh, Pennsylvania, and I'm probably going to get picked up on that because I know somebody who actually comes from that area, and they're probably going to come down on me like a ton of bricks here, uh, shows that popcorn has more antioxidants in, in it than fruit and vegetables. Not just that, but those pesky little husks, you know, the bits that get stuck between your teeth, yeah. contain an incredible high concentration of both antioxidants and, and fibre. Those hulls deserve more respect, explains Joe Vinson, one of the researchers. They're nutritional gold nuggets. In fact, Vinson seems pretty bowled over by popcorn. He explains, Popcorn may be the perfect snack food. It's a, a, the only snack that is 100% unprocessed whole grain. All other grains are processed and diluted with other ingredients. And although cereals are called whole grain, this simply means that over 51% of the weight of the product is whole grain. One serving of popcorn will provide 70% or more than 70% of the daily intake of whole grain. The average person only gets about half this um, serving a day and popcorn could fill that gap in a very pleasant way. Uh, the study found that serving a serving of popcorn provides up to 300 milligrams of polyphenols uh, which is the antioxidant in question while a typical daily intake of fruit and vegetables only provides 200 to 250 milligrams. If you're going to chow down on some popcorn, though, make sure it's a healthy kind. Don't put a load of toffee or whatever over it. And you should always use air-popped kernels. Even microwave-popped kernels has twice as many calories as the air-popped ones. Interesting. Now, I was going to ask, actually, does it make any difference if you have, you know, buttered or salt? I think it's just plain, which is a bit boring, but um, I've actually got an interesting one that, uh, and although it's microwave popcorn, so it's not as good, 
Um, interesting to try it out because it's chili flavoured. Yeah. That's going to be an interesting one when I try that. Yeah. <laughs> I sell it in home bargains. It's only something like 20 odd p. So I thought, oh, yeah, I'll give that a go. Here's another one that's kind of, it's not food related, but it's cal- calorie related. Mm-hmm. Another new study has revealed that watching scary movies can burn up to 200 calories per sitting. The adrenaline rushes that viewers experience during a 90-minute horror film are believed to use up the same amount of energy as contained within a bar of chocolate. According to the Sunday Telegraph, scientists from the University of Westminster monitored a total energy expenditure of 10 different people as they watched a selection of movies. Participants' heart rates, oxygen intake and carbon dioxide output were measured and the study found on average the number of calories used increased by a third during a horror movie viewing. The movie that burned the most calories across the board... Do you think you can guess what it was? (laughs) No. It was uh, the 1980s psychological thriller... The Shining, with an average viewer using up 184 calories, close to the amount burned during a half an hour walk. Blimey. (laughs) The classic shark horror movie Jaws finished second, with the viewers burning on average 161 calories, and The Exorcist came third, with participants using up around 158 calories during each viewing. The research also confirmed that the films featuring shock moments designed to make people jump are the best calorie burners as they cause a spike rate in the heart rate. So that would be something like Scream or something like that, really. Mm. Um, Each of the ten films tested sent pulses racing, sparking an increase in the heart rate of the case studies. As the pulse quickens and the blood pumps around the body faster, the body experiences a surge in adrenaline. It's the release of the fast-acting adrenaline produced during short bursts of intense stress, and in this case brought on by fear, which is known to lower the ap- uh, appetite, increase the, the basal metabolic rate, and ultimately burn a higher level of calories. Helen Cowley, editor of Love Film, who commissioned the study, added, We all know the feeling of wanting to hide behind the sofa or grab a pillow when watching a scary movie but this research suggests that maybe we should seek to still keep watching it so we can burn off some calories <laughs> uh, the top 10 calorie burning films are as follows at number 10 there's a film called Wreck R-E-C which I've never heard of uh, which had 101 calories uh, number 9 was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre with 105 calories mm-hmm. uh, number 8 was the Blair Witch Project which had 107 calories Paranormal Activity at number 7 with 111. Um, at number 6, Nightmare on Elm Street with 118 calories. Saw was only number 5. Now, I would have thought Saw would have been higher. Me too. Uh, with 133. Alien scored higher than Saw uh, with 152. And as we know, The Exorcist at number 3, Jaws at number 2, and The Shining at number 1. Excellent. I'm surprised there isn't any of the Final Destinations on there. Yeah, they're, they're quite jumpy films, aren't they? Yeah. Um, I've forgotten the name now of the guy who did those. He did all the Nightmare on Elm Street films as well and the Scream films. They excel at making those films that make you jump out of your seat like that. But yeah, that's that's quite an interesting one. I mean, if you spend all day just watching horror movies, you can lose a lot of weight. You can, so you don't need to feel guilty about being a couch, couch potato. <laughs> and then just eat popcorn, loads of popcorn whilst you're watching them. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Okay, we'll be back after this short message. We have a very special announcement here today on the Real Ale Guide. I've come together with a Celtic Experience Brewery in Caerphilly Wales, and we are going to be brewing or filming YouTube's first ever live brew. Um, a bit like where that guy dived out from the edge of space down to earth live on YouTube. I think he had. 8 million live viewers on on YouTube. We're going to be attempting YouTube's first ever live brew. From start to finish, from opening the malt bags to adding the yeast at the end of the brew. It's going to be probably a bit of a record. It's going to be a bit of a slog. It's going to be about 6 to 8 hours long. 
The beer is going to be called Continental Drift. It's 5.9% ABV, and it's a red rye IPA raked with rare Welsh malt and percolated with US Euro hops. As it says on the bottom there, the world's first live YouTube brew. I'd like to thank the Cat Experience Brewery and in particular Tom Newman for um, coming together with this and, and accepting um, what we're going to try and achieve. Tom's a beer sommelier, so on the downtime of the brews, when the when the brews going to be boiling, um, we're going to be doing some beer and cheese matching. We're going to be do, mixing some of his his porters with some maybe some some chocolate cookies or, or, or some some nice chocolate cake just to be matching some good food just to show you exactly what we can do with beer so that'd be quite interesting um if you've got any questions for us you can e uh, send your tweets to at real l today or at beers tom it's going to take place on the 20th of november 2012 the time we're, we're coming together with the time it's not quite i think it's going to be around 12 o'clock uk time starting because we want to try and catch a lot of the American audience as well who's going to be watching but it's live on YouTube it's, it's going to be tune in on the 20th November at www.youtube.com forward slash real ale guide um, thanks for watching my announcement as I say if you've got any questions tweet tweet to us or put your comments in the comments box um, please if you would share this video um, just to get the the word across of what we're trying to achieve here um, it's brand new to YouTube we're hoping to be the first to do it and well thank you for watching this announcement cheers guys and wish us luck so that was Tom from the uh, real ale guide on uh, YouTube um, I don't think they're gonna get as many viewers as Felix um, <laughs> making his um, freefall uh, the other day but uh, yeah, it should be quite interesting. Definitely, yeah. I don't, you, you're probably not aware of the real owl guide. You can probably guess what they do. Yeah. On there, um, he basically gets beer sent to him from the brewery and does a review of it whilst he's drinking it on um, YouTube and puts a video up. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So he's he's done loads of these reviews over the uh, over the years. He's done a few reviews at beer festivals. Uh, he was at one a few months back where he met up with Charlie Borman. Oh yes. We, we, you know, you and you and McGregor's mate, as <laughs> most people will probably know of him. Travel around the world on a motorbike. So what they're attempting to do is make beer from start to finish in the course of a day. I don't think anyone will watch it for the whole six or eight hours, but I think people will just be dipping in and dipping out again. Do you know what I mean? Just to um, see how it's progressing. Yeah. You, you have to be a real diehard. Uh, beer fanatic to watch it from start to finish I think definitely yeah I mean, all of that other food just needs a gist but uh, yeah it's the first time it's ever been done live on YouTube anyway and uh, it'll be great publicity for the Real Ale Guide so take a look I think I said it was the 20th of November and I'll put a link up to the Real Ale Guide YouTube channel on the show notes excellent well good luck to them. yeah definitely you're listening to The Garbage Pod. If I said to you, Jacko Legs, would you know what I'm talking about? Uh, actually, yes, I would. I can't remember what the time period was, but basically, an alleged giant of a man got killed in quite a lot of ways. But just before that happened, he uh, launched an arrow. Where that landed is where he was buried, apparently. Yeah, um, no, I didn't know anything about Jacko Legs until I actually came to uh, this part of Hertfordshire um, and I'm under the impression that it's taught at primary schools and uh, things like that in, in this area. So um, what it, basically it's a legend and I won't tell you about it but what I'll do is I'll play in a little piece that I managed to find about the legend of Jacko Legs uh, as it's Halloween um, it's all about legends and weird goings-on, so listen to this and uh, I think you might enjoy it. One of the most enduring and curious tales of Old Hertfordshire is that of a giant called Jacko Legs, a Robin Hood-type character who stole from the rich to give to the poor. Legend has it that he lived in a cave near Baldock in the village of Weston, and is said to be buried in the graveyard of the Holy Trinity Church, where two stones, about 14 feet apart, mark the spots where his head and feet are supposed to be. 
A sign on the village green tells the story, and his picture is part of their shield. So I went to ask Alice Cherry, the verger at the church and a resident of Weston for over 50 years, if she could tell me the story as she knew it. Well, as I know it, once upon a time, therefore when, we don't know, there was a very tall chap who lived in a cave near Weston, which is fairly unlikely because it's not exactly cavey around here. <laughs> anyway, he lived there and he was very tall and he had a lot of friends in Weston and he used to talk to them through their upstairs windows, I'm told. Anyway, I think one year there was pretty bad harvest all around about and the bakers from Bulldog cornered the market in flour and put the prices up. Sounds familiar this year. Mm -hmm. So Jack Olegs, as he was called because he was so tall, uh, lay in wait for the bakers quite often on what is now called Jack's Hill, which is between here and Gravely, and catch them and get the flour off them and go and give it to his friends in Weston. And uh, the bakers, after a bit, got pretty fed up with this. So they laid in wait for him and caught him and uh, took him to Bulldog, where they were pretty nasty to him and put out his eyes and said, That's, we're going to hang you, Jack. The story goes on to say that his captors, the bakers, decided to grant Jack Oleggs one last wish. Alice reveals what he said. Point me towards Weston and where my arrow lands, I wish to be buried. So they gave him his bow and arrow, which was no one else could pull because it was so enormous. And he fired off his arrow into the sky towards Weston and it landed three miles farther on in Weston Churchyard. And that's where he's buried, apparently. He was kind of like a Robin Hood type Yes, he was, you know. He stole from the rich to feed the poor and it didn't do him any good in the end. So he's supposedly buried in the churchyard and there's two stones, isn't there? Yes. One supposedly at his head and one at his feet. Supposedly. When I was little, people used to say he's doubled up in there, but I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> so he was like his last request that he yes. was allowed to fire this arrow. Yes, And apparently. it fired three miles. Apparently, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a very big bow. <laughs> he was. It was a very big bow because he was a very big chap. The whole thing is quite a good fairy story, really. So that's the story of Jack O'Legs, who, with his great height and extraordinarily efficient bow and arrow, does seem, like Alice says, to be a fairy story. But like all good legends, the tale must have come from somewhere. I went to meet Brendan King, the chairman of the local history society based at Baldock Museum, to find out more about the story and how it might have developed. Well, anything connected with him really is, is just been passed down by oral tradition. The earliest known reference to the story, at least we may assume it is, is from a, a poem by John Skelton of about 1521 called Speak Parrot, which is a diatribe against Cardinal Wolsey, and in it he has a line that says the gibbet of Baldock was made for Jack Legg, um, and he expected his audience, who were the people at court, really, to know about the legend. So we m must assume that the legend is quite old, even at that time. So, therefore, it's presumably a medieval legend, because, of course, Baldock um, didn't exist before 1148 or thereabouts. So the story originated sometime between 1148 and 1521. Although Brendan says that it was more likely to be the early part of that period than the later because of certain elements in the story. The capture and execution of the giant suggest a period when it was possible for the local lord to execute people caught red-handed, a rite known as infangen theft. And the whole story of Jackaleg suggests that he was subject to something like a legal lynching. But nobody is really sure. Here's Brendan again. Um, we do have instances in the period of the Templars of, of people being hanged by the preceptor, the local commander of the Templars, who lived, would have been at Temple Dinsley in Hitch, and he wouldn't have lived in Baldock. So this was more likely that the, this, the tall robber had been caught red-handed stealing the bread, and the baker's, as you say, was almost like a public lynching, and then yes. he was allowed to be hanged because he'd been caught red-handed. It would seem like to, uh, lynching to us. But if that's what happened, again, one cannot be too certain about these things. It is a legend and uh, you don't know to what extent it's true, but just taking the essence of it, it would appear that it's a medieval legend of a robber, um, rather like Robin Hood. The earliest actual written account of the story, whatever its truth, came in 1728 as part of Nathaniel Salmon's History of Hertfordshire. 
But even though this is when the story was first written down, Brendan is careful to caution us not to believe everything we read. Again, you have to remember this is the legend as it was yeah. re remembered. And all the time it gets accretions added to it. And even when this was first recorded in 1728, it probably was all sorts of versions and if you went and asked different people now they'd come up with all sorts of versions of the story so you know it's very difficult to just say where any truth in it lies. The story has always tended to make him bigger and bigger so one story has him has his eye being put out with a baker's peel which is the long shovel that they used to put uh, loaves in an oven with you know it all tends to give the impression of a huge per, per giant. Uh, another thing is, of course, that he, a lot of people will say he went round Baldock looking in upstairs windows. <laughs> That's another reason that they didn't like him. But, uh, you know, these are all just embellishing the legend and each person will embellish it in their own way, won't they? That's why the whole thing's so difficult to disentangle because <laughs> uh, there may not be an, an ounce of truth in the whole thing, but it seems to me that it, it, the very essence of it is a, a giant, a large robber, a big robber who was well known for, for a long way around, not just in Baldock and Weston. One hopes that one day, looking through medieval court records, we might come across the name Jack Legger, which would be very interesting. Yeah. There, is, there are people called that of that period, but yeah. I haven't found a connection with Baldock yet. So, apart from the embellishments, the basic story sounds plausible from, from what life was like in the time, but there isn't actually anything that we know for certain about this story, is there? No, no, only that very early reference to it by Skelton. So he knew about it, but again, that could have come from a it legend. It still could have been a legend, yes. yes. There's yes. no actual evidence for anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> it seems likely then that from all the references to him that are still in the area and from things that happen in the story, the legend of Jack Legs possibly originated from the existence of a tall robber who stole from the rich to give to the poor, got caught red-handed and was executed. But because he was good to the less fortunate, he became like a local hero and was talked about from generation to generation, each time becoming taller, braver and even more heroic with a bigger bow and arrow. When the reality is, he was probably buried in Weston because that's the parish where he lived, not because of the extraordinary powers of his weaponry. But as Brendan says, whatever the facts of the situation might be, it's likely that Jack Legs was known far and wide and maybe one day we'll find out the truth. But at the moment, it's really all pure speculation. So there you go. That was the uh, the legend of Jacko Legs. He's really, really famous in these parts. Um, you've only got to look at certain areas. Uh, it, it mentioned in the piece that uh, where he used to hold up uh, these uh, bakers for the flour uh, was on the uh, up by Gravely, uh, and if if you notice, there's a place just on the brow of the hill there as you come up to Brook Gravely called Jack's Hill, mm. named after Jacko Legs. And what's the name of the pub on the top there? Uh, to be honest, I've never actually took any notice. It's called the Highwayman. Ah, interesting. So that's the reason for it. Uh, even breweries have got in on it. Um, Tring Brewery have produced a beer called um, Jacko Legs. And the Buntingford Brewery have got one called Highwayman IPA. So it's all to do with Jacko Legs. <laughs> yeah, excellent. So he's well honoured. Yes, pretty much so. But then... As I said, most of these characters who rob rich to give to the poor generally do get treated like heroes rather than villains. Yeah. Uh, another one that's famous for uh, not so much giving to the poor but stealing from the rich was the, the notorious Dick Turpin. Yeah. I actually saw Dick Turpin's grave when I was up in York because mm -hmm. that's where he, he was from York and that's where he was executed. And I'm going to be playing a little bit more about York uh, towards the end of the show. But now, um, what I thought I would do is play in a little piece that uh, I recorded the other day uh, when I came up with a strange idea. So, um, here we go. I was 
listening to a radio program recently and it was all about microwaves not the oven variety just microwaves in general and it's inspired me to conduct a scientific experiment now microwave ovens are designed and constructed in a way that contains the microwaves so that they shouldn't leak out of the microwave oven now what this experiment is about is I have my my mobile phone here and as you know microwaves uh, are found in cell phone or mobile phone signals now the idea of this experiment is if I place my mobile phone in the microwave and ring it in theory the mobile phone should not ring because it's protected by the encasing on the in the microwave if it does ring then there could possibly be a leak in the microwave so I'm just going to go and get the the house phone the landline and I'm going to ring my mobile phone send I'm going to ring it again, but this time outside the microwave. Just to prove that the phone is actually working. There you go. So that proves my theory is right. And I am relieved to say that our microwave oven is perfectly safe. Well, there you go. There's an experiment that you can all try at home just to see if your microwave leaks or not. What did you make of that, John? Interesting. Weird. Um, I had no idea that a microwave, obviously it's some kind of a containment system, but I had no idea it would actually work like a Faraday cage. Interesting. Yeah, I, I heard about somebody trying it on this, uh, on this radio show and thought, hmm, I could try that myself and record it. Hmm. <laughs> Probably a load of old kibosh, but it seems to work. Another reason why I did that is because being Halloween and you sometimes think of mad professors and doing experiments in their lab. Um, so I thought, well, I don't have a lab as such, but I have a kitchen, so uh, I could try that. Laura LaRue here. Whenever I'm in the potosphere, there's only one place to be. The garbage pod. Right. Uh, we're nearly at the end of the show. As just mentioned, it's Halloween. Um, so what I wanted to play in was a clip from our visit to York recently. Now, 
York is one of the uh, oldest cities in the UK, I would have said. And in York, there are lots and lots of different kinds of walks that you can go on. Some during the day where they're informative. There's a really good one in York, actually. It's run by volunteers, but these volunteers are all very, very passionate about history and geography. It's a couple of hours long, this walk, but it's really, really interesting. Uh, unfortunately you're not allowed to record during those um, walks which is a bit of a downer really but in the evenings they have a lot of ghost walks (laughs) now uh, there are two or three different types you can choose from there are the ones where um, it's very historical um, but you, you tend to hear the same stories over and over again Then you've got the ones where you get some idiots that are dressed up in costume and jump out at you for no apparent reason whilst the guide's taking you around. (laughs) And then you get the one that we went on, which is one of the official ones, and it does tell you some stories as you go around and a little bit of history about the city. Um, And it's also very funny and entertaining. So I'm going to play a little extract from it. I'm not going to play the whole thing because it would ruin it if if you ever did go up to York and decide to take one of these ghost walks. But I'll play uh, a little extract from the, the walk that we went on. Ladies and... My name is unimportant, but tonight I will be your guide. I will take care of you, no matter what happens. You will all be able to hear. You will all be able to see. But before we start, I give you a guarantee. Some of you may scream. (laughs) Especially you! Some of you may laugh, a nervous laugh. Some of you may be moved to tears. And you will wet yourself (laughs) again. But my guarantee to all of you is that you will never forget tonight for the rest of your life. In a moment, we'll head off down Swank, where in Victorian times, you could have bought yourselves a pig, a nice pink pork. We'll cross over Great Lake, where you could have bought yourselves a bottle of wine. But in Victorian times, Great Lane had a nickname. It used to be called Group Lane. And ladies, if you hung around there in Victorian times, you could have made yourselves a bit of a prophet. <laughs> well, one or two of you, will it? <laughs> now, you must stay behind me at all times. The man at the back, yes, you, keep up. Or you may find yourself grabbed by a goo. It's quite pleased by that, I <laughs> To get ready, we're going to head off down Swanky, over Great Lane, into a narrow, dark alley named Coffee Yard past a medieval barley hall and out into Stonegate where our ghost hunt begins. Stay close, stay behind and keep up. <laughs> but first, are you people ready for anything? Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps we should all join hands and try to contact the living. <laughs> I, said, I said, are you people ready for anything? Yes! yes! 
<laughs> Don't be so shocked. <laughs> okay. <coughs> when we leave this doorstep here tonight, the very first house we'll come to will be a tiny stone house. It has a tiny window next to a drink. I will point it out to you <clears throat> when we leave. Our next story is once again about the ghost of a small child. She's often seen at the tiny window. She appears to have tears in her eyes and she appears to be scratching at the glass. This house has come to be known as the Plague House. And our story goes back to the time of the plague. The family that lived there were naturally scared of catching the plague. They would stay indoors as much as they possibly could. But they had a small daughter. And they would send out to the markets to get provisions. One night, when the mother was tucking the small child into bed, she noticed that her daughter had developed large black boils under her arms. She didn't say anything to the child except good night, and she went out of the bedroom. <coughs> but that night, she locked the bedroom door. She went down to her husband, and together they decided that they would leave their tiny home, that they would leave York, and that they would leave behind their only child. And that is what they did. But before they left, they painted a large red cross on the door to warn people that the building was infected. And no doubt the next day, the child awoke. She would have gone across to her bedroom door, but she would have found that it was locked. And no doubt she would have called out for her mother, but there would have been no answer. And surely she came to the tiny window to get the attention of passers-by. And I'm sure that many people did see it. But they've also noticed the red cross on the door. And no one would have dared to have entered. And so, this small child, deserted by her own parents, kept prisoner in her own bedroom, was left to die. She is one of the most frequently seen ghosts in York, seen up to ten times a year, sometimes during the day, sometimes at night. People see this small child with blonde hair crying and scratching at the glass. And of course people now, they go to the front of the house. They knock on the door and say, don't you know, there's something the matter with your daughter. Of course, the people who live in that house now just have to say, sorry, but we have no children. <laughs> it's a very sad story. I, I choose to tell it here, out of respect for the people who live in that house now. The people who live here, I hate. <laughs> so, we're going to move along and very shortly we'll hear of York's most famous ghost story. I will point to the tiny window when we leave. But before we leave, there is something I like to do with a crowd every night. Everybody, everybody take a very deep breath in. Hold it and listen. So that was the uh, the York Ghost Walk that we went on. Uh, what did you think of that one, John? Unique, I think, is the only word I can use. 
he was really, really funny. Excellent. But he, um, he was... I've got a friend who's actually uh, at York University doing his doctorate. Oh, yeah. Um, he's actually just finished. Uh, and uh, his parents, you know, through the years have gone up to York to visit. And I think they've done one of these. And he's actually, ironically, uh, doing his doctorate in archaeology and history. Oh, right. There's plenty. So he, he's written quite a few books. It's sort of focusing on that area and down the shambles. There's a lot of history down the shambles. If people don't know what the shambles actually are, the, the shambles is a very, very narrow medieval street. It's a, it's a strange place, very rickety. <laughs> but it's a lovely, lovely-looking uh, part of the, of the city. But, yeah, I would recommend going to uh, one of them. And they're not that expensive. I think it's about £5, but you do get something like an hour to an hour and a half of walking around. So you just got to make sure you are prepared for the weather because they do go whatever the weather. They don't cancel. (laughs) But it is well worth the, the visit. You're listening to The Garbage Pod. Where your input is our output. So, if you like the show, get in touch with us. Uh, I always uh, appreciate any feedback that I get from listeners. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. That would be great if you could. Go to the website um, for any f- further information. All the old shows are on there. There's the blog on there as well. It's uh, very easy to navigate around. Uh, you can find it at www.garbagepod.weebly.com. Thanks to John for joining me this evening. Pleasure. Um, Unfortunately, Adri couldn't join us this evening because he's working. I'm going to try and get Adri to come over here again sometime. It was quite funny when he came down last. All he got to see really was the station road. Because I'm sure he's under under the impression that um, Letchworth is one road and that is it. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> yeah, so he's not been in these neck of the woods before? N- no. Uh, well, he has. He's been here. <laughs> he's been to, to uh, Taylor Towers, as I could call it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the end of the show. So that means it only leaves me to say, well, it's good night from me. And it's good night from him. Thanks for listening. Take care. The Garbage Pod is a Spamhead production.